This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today is a very special laboratory medicine rounds. We're rounding with Dr. Charles Sturgis, a professor in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, as well as program director of the Anatomic and Clinical Pathology Residency Program at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Sturgis. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So this is a really special podcast for us. Uh, we tend to have a, a very diverse audience, ranging from clinicians, pathologists, laboratory professionals, and we have students. But today we're really going to take a, a, a few minutes and really focus on our student listeners, specifically the medical students that are going to be applying for uh, pathology residency programs this year. First question I'd like to kind of get started is this whole why. Why is it important for medical students to prepare for their residency interviews? That's a great question. I think there are a number of reasons why it can be helpful to give some thought to the interview before you actually pop into the window. One is, you know, this year with many interviews being done virtually, there's a little bit of a, a distance between people physical distance that might not have historically been there. So I think if you, if the applicant, whether that's for residency or uh, other jobs, takes a, a minute to invest some time and read a little bit about both the institution and the people that he or she might be meeting, then maybe they'll be a little bit more at ease with what can be, especially initially, a challenging or stressful environment. So investing, you know, just a little bit of time can give them a sense of calm and maybe also a little a sense of knowing, a sense of being better informed. I know when I go into a new situation, if I don't know anything about the people or the place, I'm a little not as quite as comfortable as if I have some understanding of what's going on in the surroundings. I imagine that works both ways, right? I mean, as a program director, you want uh, the person you're interviewing to be as relaxed as possible because you're probably going to be the most likely to really kind of see that person at their best and see uh, how they're thinking. And likewise, for the person interviewing uh, to be relaxed, they can have a clear thought process to, to really answer the questions as best as they can. Yes. What do you think about, you know, when you talk about spending some time preparing and, and looking up information about the uh, program they're interviewing, and, and you mentioned some of the people that they might be interviewing with, what do you recommend that students do to prepare for those interviews? Is it looking at uh, websites? Is it going to PubMed? Like, what do you recommend well, I think, think about. I think both of the things that you just mentioned are excellent resources. You know, I'm a becoming a senior citizen. And when I was doing interviews for residency, the internet was not a tool that was available. And it certainly didn't contain all the information that it would now. So people can check out all the faculty that are in a program. They can identify people with whom they might have specific interests to help tailor their questions. PubMed is another great resource because you can look at what people are publishing and then direct questions to them from a more intellectual or academic side. Uh, but I think 
maybe stepping back just a little bit about preparation for the interview would be simple things like, you know, prior to this interview this morning, I spent at least 30 minutes combing my hair. And doesn't it look beautiful, right? It does. So I think that those simple things, some attention to personal hygiene, especially when people are interviewing remotely, like don't show up to the interview in your pajamas, even though you're doing the interview in your bedroom. And don't have a trace of your kale smoothie on your left front tooth. Like, you know, check it out so that you're really going into it feeling physically empowered and at your best. Those things can be, I think, super helpful. Another thing is to test out all of your equipment. Since we're going to be interviewing virtually or digitally to make sure that you're audio works well because if the person who's remote doesn't hear you well that isn't it's going to potentially be a negative in the interaction and while all these tools are fabulous we don't want those to be the limitation that prevents someone for, from performing at their peak or their height mm-hmm. i mean those sound very simplistic but i think those are very important things to remember Maybe if I can ask a little bit about that last point you brought up about testing your system out, because I think that really hits on something that's going to be important this year. I imagine a lot of programs are going to be using software that a lot of us are using right now in daily life, but I don't know, maybe there's a program that's using something that an applicant is unfamiliar with. Is that fair game, you think, for an applicant to reach out to that program ahead of time to ask them if they can test out their system? Yeah, and I think the other thing to do is that maybe at the beginning of the very first interaction they're having, whether that's with a faculty interviewer or perhaps the program administrator to just ask the question, am I coming through well? Are you hearing me well? Are you seeing me well? Certainly contacting the program ahead of time would make them realize that your interest is genuine. Like you said, most people are increasingly comfortable with these modalities. One of the things I think that's challenging in this pandemic time and that COVID is complicating, and and this is, I think, especially relevant in pathology, is that in our ERAS and NRMP processes for the applicants, I think there are a little bit over a thousand people applying currently this year in the cycle. And, you know, here at Mayo, we've received more than 500 applications for our seven positions. So it's a competitive environment, even for a specialty that is not exceptionally competitive. And um, what I'm experiencing as a first-time program director, this is my kind of maiden voyage through this process, is that probably 70% of our applicants are um, students who are applying from out of the country and maybe actually interviewing from out of the country. So these um, tools are allowing us like way greater connectivity than we would have had in the past. But I think communication is something that evaluators are really trying to assess especially for people who might be coming from 
countries or cultures where there are different languages. And so for people who are wanting to confirm that they have good English language skills and that they understand the culture, that's going to be even more challenging over a virtual connection than maybe like when you're sitting across the desk. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage people to think carefully about their speech and to pronounce things perhaps even slightly more definitively or to give their language even more emphasis than they perhaps normally would. Really focus on enunciating those individual words. Yeah, exactly. Kind of relevant to that. I know I've done it in, in an interview situation. Sometimes I maybe misspeak at first or so I have kind of that false start or times where maybe an interviewer has asked me a challenging question that I'm having a little bit of uh, difficulty forming an answer to. I was curious, do you have any thoughts or the way students can uh, kind of manage these? I, these are just kind of very can be very stress-inducing. And do you have any thoughts on uh, how students can think about approaching that if that happens to them? Well, I think I also experience that sometimes, and maybe maybe that's part of why I'm in pathology. <laughs> I mean, just candidly. But so I would judge no one uh, on an individual basis about that. I think maybe two things to keep in mind are just honesty, just saying, hey, that's that's a tough question. And I'd like to think about it. You could even say, could you ask me another question and let that one percolate in my mind for a couple of minutes and I'll come back to it. And I I would, as an interviewer, would have no problem with that. I would actually think that was pretty thoughtful. Another thing that I sometimes do when I'm caught between a little bit of a rock and a hard place in my mind and I'm not sure what to say is, I might reply with something that uses humor um, in the sense that I think humor is a, is a very adult coping mechanism. It lets the person know that you're thinking and you probably want to address what they're saying, but it takes the pressure off of you and off of them, maybe buys you 15, 20 seconds to let your gears spin a little more and then to go to the question. Those, might, those options might not work for everyone, but those are things I would toss out there as things to consider. I think that's wonderful. And I think how you started it to respond to, I, I just want to point that out and, and highlight it, underline it for the listeners uh, who are going to be interviewing the idea that both Dr. Sturgis and I often have these times where we might uh, misspeak or have trouble conjuring an answer. And so to try to not let that uh, start to take over your mind and, and hijack yourself, it, it's a very human thing. For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. One of the 
questions. I've been doing a couple of practice interviews for our medical students here at Mayo who are going to be interviewing at programs. One of the common questions that I've been getting have been kind of any feedback about my background of where I'm at, right? A lot of Zoom meetings I'm on now, people are using that sort of uh, digital background uh, of kind of a standardized photo. And then I know that sometimes other people you see uh, where they are in C2. And do you have any thoughts? You were talking earlier as we were talking, Dr. Sturgis, about that the professionalism, being mindful of your appearance. And I think that probably does include your background. And uh, do you have any thoughts about uh, recommendations, which I think are pretty pertinent this year? Yeah, Justin, I think that's a great question. And I'll tell you that we had a meeting to talk about what we were going to do as interviewers here at Mayo for the program. And this came up from the context of what would be the preference here. And there were people who had strong feelings in multiple directions. Uh, There were people who thought that using kind of a prefab Mayo background of some ilk would be preferable. And then there were other people who thought, I think, pretty strongly that projecting not only yourself, but your environment would make things more personal and maybe slightly more akin to what we would experience if we were having real face-to-face interactions. And I think I'm, I'm a little bit more on the latter half, and maybe that's evidenced by, you know, what I'm doing here. I'm just sitting in my office. So if I were an applicant and I were kind of switching roles, I think it would depend upon, you know, where I were finding myself the day of my interview. If I were traveling and I was in a hotel room or, you know, somewhere out of my own personal space or in a space that wasn't aesthetically pleasing in some way, then I would probably choose to use one of those backgrounds. But if I were at home or in a a space that is kind of me and I've cleaned it up so it looks, you know, organized and tidy, I probably would choose that because I would feel comfortable and it would be an expression of myself. So I guess my answer is I don't know that there's a right or a wrong and I would trust people to pick what they think is the best for them. I do think that like having kale in your teeth and not brushing your hair, your background will be perceived as part of the process. So it is something to give some thought. I would hope that no one who's interviewing in the same way that no one who is an interviewee would judge someone based on whether you know their wall is green or blue or says mayo or the background is your kitchen. I would leave that to the individual. And I agree, there is not really a right or a wrong, but I think you've given us a a way to approach it, a thought process on thinking, you know, am I in an environment that is reflective of who I am and is going to represent me? And and I think to your point, represent me professionally. And uh, if that answer is no, then I really should probably think about what would be a professional image to to use one of those kind of background green screens with. My last question I wanted to go to, and this also is something I've noticed when I've been doing the practice interviews with our medical students here, is um, you know sometimes it's hard or difficult for medical students to ask 
relevant questions uh, of the program and the program director. And so to highlight for our listeners, these interviews are really a two-way street. It's an opportunity for you to, to learn as much about the programs as it is the programs to learn about you. And, and likewise, just like the program is going to be ranking its applicants, uh, you are going to be making your rank list in the year as well. And so uh, it's really important to kind of find out some information. But I think one of the difficult things, and maybe I'm projecting here a little, is, um, you know, if you're a medical student interviewing for a pathology uh, residency program, sometimes it makes sense to say, sometimes it's difficult to know what the relevant questions are. And so I was curious, Dr. Sergius, knowing what you know now in your position, what are a few questions or areas maybe that pathology residents may want to question that would really be helpful for getting that pulse and that feel for the individual program? Well, I think there are a few things that I would think about that maybe I wouldn't have thought about, you know, when I was interviewing many, many years ago, some of which would be really relevant for an interview setting, some of which might not be. So I'm not going to go to those because I don't want to encourage people to dig a hole they can't get out of in an interview. I think that pathology, like many areas, or maybe even all areas in professional healthcare delivery, is becoming increasingly specialized. So when someone says, well, like if you meet someone and even if it's at a pathology meeting where everyone is a pathologist, when someone says that, you say, well, what do you do? And people want to know, well, you know, are you a, a blood banker or a transfusion medicine doctor like you? Or are you a cytopathologist like me? Or the many dozens of myriad other little specialty areas. And I think sometimes students are pushing themselves to be more differentiated than they need to be at a very early phase. So it's great to have an interest or interests. And those, I think, show that you've really considered options and are thinking about your future. But it's also great, I think, and perhaps even more important to be open-minded. So, you know, you can ask about the strengths and weaknesses of programs. And you could ask that same question to a number of people and see if you get reproducible answers or if different people give you very different perspectives. And if you do ask about focused areas or individual faculty people, I would do that in the context of maintaining a very open mind. I went into pathology thinking I was going to be a pediatric pathologist, and that did not happen. And the outcome that did happen, I think, was better for me. And I, I did that by doing a bunch of things and seeing you know, what worked out the best. I think it's also good to ask some non-pathology, non-professional even questions, not only of the residents and the non-physician people like the program coordinators, but of the faculty. One of the most important parts of my day every day is lunch, which you need only look at me to recognize as truth. Um, and so, you know, you can say, what do you do for lunch? And I think that would actually be very well received. It gives you information about 
whether you eat on site. It gives you information about whether people eat in groups and engage in social behavior. And that might not be the question for everyone, but questions like that that are open-ended, so not yes and no, that encourage the interviewer to tell you things that you might not even be directly asking that will give you insights into the kind of the way the program exists, you know, globally, those can, I think, can be very valuable. I think maybe the other important question is to ask about where do the graduates of the program go? You know, what do they do? And if, you know, let's say 70% of the graduates of a particular program end up working in academia, running their own labs with NIH funding, and if that's what you want to pursue, then that could be a very good thing. But if that isn't what you want to pursue, then maybe even though where you're interviewing is a world-class place, maybe that's you know not the place for you. And if it's a really great place, but 70% of the applicants all go to work in industry or commercial laboratories, which are great jobs and could be wonderful lives, but that's not your goal or life, then maybe that's not the best place for you either. So those are things I might encourage people to ask. I think that's brilliant, right? So for our listeners, I mean, I think Dr. Sturgis has really opened up and to think about, there are a couple domains that we might think about posing questions, right? You were talking about the actual uh, work environment. You're talking about maybe the social environment uh, outside of work or what you're doing during lunch. You're talking about where do the graduates go? And I, I think another component you're telling us or what I'm hearing your answer to is, as you're getting these answers, there's not necessarily a right or a wrong answer to eat lunch or what right. graduates do. <laughs> yeah. But how does that jive with your own personal feelings and, and desires at this time that you know? And I think also like having the questions be open, whatever they are, I think that's a struggle for interviewers as well, because when we ask questions that are either one word answer or yes, no answer, that doesn't lead to more conversation. It can give you valuable information. So I think that if the interviewees are aware of that and they ask questions that are more conversational, that will put interviewers who aren't honestly professional interviewers, they don't do this every day either, at ease and make the whole thing more like an experience than like an interview which bodes well for all parties. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, and something that I've seen in the past that I think is very effective, because again, it demonstrates that uh, somebody has put thought into it. Sometimes I see interviewees that have a list of their questions on a, on a piece of paper or in their folder that they have brought with them to the interview. And I guess I, from hearing your answer, I, I think it's really highlighting for our listeners this is a component of preparation and to think about because maybe it's difficult to ask an open-ended question on the spot and so maybe writing down a couple of thoughts ahead of time and yeah. don't feel afraid to pull that out and just check that when the interviewer asks do you have any questions yeah, and i think um as the day goes on like i will be interviewing every applicant 
So they will have been asked a lot of questions and they will have asked many of their questions by two o'clock when I have my, my last of the six or seven people of the day. And it's disheartening as an interviewer if you ask questions and people say, well, all of my questions have been answered. I would encourage the applicants, even if they ask the same questions over and over again, in a way that's like quality control. It's seeing, you know, what are what is everyone saying? And it's far better to ask a question to which you may already know the answer than to say, you know, no, I don't really have any more questions. That leaves the person who's asking feeling like maybe you're not entirely interested or enthusiastic about the process. It's so smart, I think. To think about uh, you ask a question, you get an answer. I think to highlight we've been talking about a lot of different areas and you brought up the point that you're a cytopathologist, I'm a transfusion medicine doc and how our lives uh, may be similar and yet very different. And so we might have different answers and that is just hopefully showing the bouquet of what a program is. I like that, yeah. Fantastic. So today we've, we've been rounding with uh, Dr. Charles Sturgis, a professor of uh, laboratory medicine and pathology at Mayo Clinic and program director of the anatomic and clinical pathology residence program. Thank you so much, Dr. Sturgis, for taking time to discuss interviewing with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity and everybody out there, be well, stay safe, keep healthy, take care of yourselves. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.